A reading from the Gospel according to John. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Damien, and I'm the pastor here at New City. It's good to be with you, and I continue to be struck by this passage, verses 37 through 39 in John chapter 7. As Ben mentioned, we are going to be walking through these, the early chapters of the Gospel of John, looking at the way in which John uses metaphors to describe belief. Sometimes I think we, in our Christian faith, settle for mere abstraction. And I think in this church and churches like New City, we like ideas and we like to stay there in our minds and get our facts straight and our ideas and concepts straight. And that's important, but it has to land. And one of the ways in which language can be used to take something that can feel and seem abstract to us and make it visceral is through metaphor. Because it's, we understand metaphor, we understand in a physical sense what it's like to be thirsty, for example. And so what does it mean that believing in Jesus is like having your thirst quenched? What is that like? What happens? And so this morning, we'll start walking through the Gospel of John. We'll actually be in the Gospel of John all the way up until Easter. We will make the transition at Lent into a different series, but we're going to be in John. For the next several weeks. And I want to draw your attention to verse 37. On the last day of the feast. The great day. So this, this tells you that we picked up in the middle of, of a chapter that has a lot of context. This feast particularly is the feast of booze. Or the feast of the tabernacle. Or uh, feast of tabernacles. Or, or something like that. It has a few different names. But commentators will point out that by this time it had become probably the most popular feast that the Jewish people engaged in. And what would happen is people would come uh, to the temple in Jerusalem and they would spend a week at seven or eight days. There was a, the eighth day was the day when they tore down all the tents they stayed in and it sort of became the day after the day, uh, after the feast. It sort of became part of the feast and it was a celebration day. So we're not sure if the great day was day seven or day eight, probably day seven. But either way, the important thing for us to know for the context is that what's happening, what's being celebrated in this feast is God's provision in the desert wanderings. If you remember the story of Moses and the people being led through the desert for 40 years, you think about what are the, what are the three things that are most basic needs that aren't available in the desert? Shelter, Food and water, right? Now in this particular feast, all week they would build these tents and live in them in order to remind themselves of what it would have been like to wander through the desert and live in tents. The chapter right before this, John talks about Jesus being the bread of life. 
And Jesus offers himself as that second need in the desert, which would have been food. And then we all have been told, my daughter just told me uh, again that she learned in school recently that the most important thing is water, right? We can't live more than a day or two or three without water. We can live much longer without food. And water is what Jesus really hones into in this particular passage. And so I want to tell you something about what would happen in this feast every day as it pertains to water. The priest would lead a joyous procession down to the pool of Siloam and he would have a basically a gold pitcher. And he would go and he would take uh, a pitcher full of water and he would look at the people and he would cry out the words of Isaiah 12, chapter three, I mean, 12, verse three, that says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would go through a quite lengthy liturgy, but they would, he would lead the people back up to the temple. And then before the altar, he would pour out this pitcher of water into a basin. And when he would pour out the water, it was to be a sign of faith that God will provide, right? Because water is precious. It's a precious provision. So why is he dumping it out? Well, because it's a, it's a, it's a belief, it's trust in the fact that God will continue to provide what his people need. And D.A. Carson, who's a commentator and wrote a commentary on John, says this about the time that Jesus would have lived, Second Temple Judaism, the liturgy had become uh, a mixture of both looking back to what God had done, but also looking forward to what God would do in his future provision. And D.A. Carson says this, these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought, both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert, that would be with Moses in the wanderings, and to the Lord's pouring out of the spirit in the last days. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles, that is pouring the water, refers symbolically to the messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. So you see, there's quite a bit going on here. This would happen every day for seven days. Procession down, pitcher full of water, back up, chanting and singing the Psalms as they walk back up. All of this pomp and circumstance, there was uh, the blowing of horns, lots of noise and celebration and singing, looking back to God's provision of this water in the desert and looking forward to God's provision of his spirit in the days uh, when the Messiah would come in these last days. And it was somewhere in the midst of all of this on the great day, the last day after people had been participating in this ceremony, Jesus stands up, verse 37, and cries out. I imagine he doesn't just stand up like he's sitting. I, I imagine in my mind that he finds a place that's elevated. He doesn't just stand from a seated position, but, but maybe he, he stands up on some perch so that he can be seen. And he doesn't just gather a few of his disciples and speak loud enough in case other people around over here, but he cries out these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow waters, rivers of living water. You see, Jesus, in the midst of all of this, stood up and claimed that he had the water 
all thirsty people were looking for. This is the context of this passage. And so you and I, what are we to do when we come to this passage? How are we to understand belief in this metaphor of water? Well, the first thing that I want to draw our attention to is that like any good metaphor, this idea of thirsting and water quenching our thirst taps in to a very universal reality. You see, this thirst, this longing to be filled up, to have our desires quenched is a universal thirst. The Bible The entire Bible is filled with passages that assume that you and I and every human being has longings that need to be satisfied, have desires that are good and right, and that we're actually driven and pulled by those very desires. The Bible also is clear that we lack something deep down that's even more essential than what we would call H2O, right? Water's importance to the very cells of our body, to the very smallest elements. We need water in order for our body to work. Jesus is saying that we have a longing that only the water he has can quench. Now, I want to read a few verses because Jesus isn't coming up with this metaphor. He's actually tapping into a whole stream pun intended, of, of metaphor here with water, okay? You like that? That was for a couple of you who really appreciate that. Some of you still don't get it. I'm sorry. Okay, so listen to this. This uh, some of my favorites. Psalm 63, verse 1. Remember, we're listening for the idea of water and God's provision. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, where there is no water. Psalm 107, 35. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. Some of us, we remember Psalm 42, that as a deer pants for water, right? The deer that puts this image in our mind. And the reason I bring this up here is because when I read Psalm 42 and the image of a deer who's panting for streams of water and finds it and goes to drink, I tend to think of where I'm from, which is the Midwest, where, where uh, I, maybe you're the same, uh, I think of lush forest. I think of green and trees and lots of options to go find running water. But the psalmist is from what we would understand as the Middle East. Like, these are deserts. And so water is a very, very scarce resource. And so the, the imagery of living water is one of water in the desert. One where water is scarce and must be found and provided. And then we'll go to Revelation 21. And Jesus And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Next chapter, Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And of course we read, In the call to worship, Isaiah 55, verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the water. So the Bible is filled with this invitation to first recognize your longings and and then to come and expect them to be satisfied. Because I actually think the issue for us now in this room is that we function as though the Bible either is ignorant of our desires or that God doesn't care about our desires. 
And so the way we oftentimes can think about growing in maturity is looking at our longings and desires and squelching them and saying they're bad and marginalizing them. But as C.S. Lewis in his famous quote tells us, the problem most of the time is not that our desires are too big. It's that they're too small. And so you and I must first recognize that we have these deep longings. Our experience of life in Jesus will only be as big as your understanding of your desires. If you think you have small desires, your desire to come to Jesus to fill those desires will be small. But if you recognize, and I recognize how big our desires are, how deep our longings go, how fundamental it is to being human, to want things, to love things, to desire things. When we start to get a glimpse of that, then we read verses like this, where Jesus says, come and I have the, the streams of living water, right? Or, or we read Psalm 42 or any of these passages that I just read. And we then begin to see that our desires are very important and God longs to quench them, right? We, the problem is, is that when we feel our desires, our longings, what we do is we tend to numb them. We tend to numb them with Netflix and social media and productivity and self-pity and alcohol, all types of things. We tend to numb them because they're so strong We're afraid to feel them because we don't know what to do with them. But you see, when we admit our desires and and come to the scriptures and understand that, that they are good, then they'll begin to be reshaped and redirected towards their proper ends. That's the beauty of what we find in the way the Bible talks about desires. St. Augustine said in a prayer, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, the basic thirst of everyone is the thirst for peace or wholeness. As author Barry Jones says, the peace that comes about when God's presence and God's reign are fully realized. And both are important. God's presence, I I can be face to face with God. By the way, this is why communion is at the center of our definition of a whole life disciple. Our longings must be taken to the very face of God and the presence of God. And then the way they'll be carried out is as we live under the reign of God. As we pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in our hearts and then through our lives. And so the reality is all of us have a universal thirst. The Bible knows it, invites us to admit it, and points us to who can fulfill it. Just watch commercials. Just watch commercials that would make no sense unless you lived in our day and age, right? There's, I heard recently of a, um, of a Jeep Renegade commercial where there's a, there's a guy who is in like a flannel shirt, jeans. I think they might have holes in them. It's in the middle of the day. He's at the end of a dock like a pier and he's sitting on the roof of the Jeep and the camera is coming from the water and behind him is this whole cityscape. And the whole, all the words, like they're single words that are sort of dropping from the narrator. And they're all to communicate that the purpose of life is to chart your own course. The purpose of life is to go find how you will fill your desires. And all I could think about was like, 
where's everyone else? Like, are people working? Are people there on the beach? Is he the only one? But that's not what I'm supposed to think. I'm supposed to understand, right, what's happening. And I do understand what's happening. Because I live in this world too, and I know the ways that we tend to be taught how our desires will be fulfilled. We just get it. Charles Taylor, a philosopher, would call this our social imaginary. It actually is deeper than a worldview. It's deeper because it's sort of that thing we understand before we even think about how we understand it or what we understand it. And we just sort of navigate through it. And so this is happening all around us. Jesus isn't the only one crying out, come to me, I'll quench your thirst. There are lots of people and things that are crying out, come to me, I will quench your thirst. And so therefore the Bible also understands that this is true, which is why it talks about the fact that thirst can go wrong, right? So that's my second observation is a thirst gone wrong. There's a powerful passage found in Jeremiah chapter two, in which Jeremiah employs a metaphor also using water. Chapter two, verse 13 in Jeremiah says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, in ancient times, people would dig a pit or make a big clay pot and it would collect the rainwater. The problem is that if there's a crack in it, the water leaks out really quickly. And so what we have is, as Jeremiah is saying, it was as though these thirsty people with these longings and desires had the, 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 the stream of living water right here. And all they had to do was go and drink. It was provided for them. But instead, they decided they would go do the really hard work of digging a cistern and collecting water from other sources. But then the problem was, is that the cistern was cracked. But then guess what? They didn't say, oh, I should go over here where this living water is. They said, I should dig another cistern and I should dig another cistern and keep digging. And then maybe it will hold water. But Jeremiah says, enough's enough. This is evil what you're doing. I've provided you this living water and you're trying to find provision by the work of your own hands. And this is actually what the prophet is saying. He's speaking to the human tendency to try and satiate our thirsts and desires from our own resources to make life work on our own terms. That's what Jeremiah is speaking against. And of course, the Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. This is when we elevate something, someone, some experience, some expectation, some achievement to a higher place of loyalty in our hearts and a higher place of devotion in our hearts. We elevate something, a person, a thing, an achievement, higher, a longing even, higher than God himself. The Bible calls this idolatry. And when we use the metaphor of thirst, what we're we're trying to do in our idolatry is satiate our thirst with that thing. But what if the very thirst that you and I had was not only accessible to us, But when we would access it, it would come into us and flow out of us because we couldn't contain it. You know, this image of water flowing out, I have two examples 
in my mind that are both terrifying to me. And even when I tell the story, it, it brings uh, anxiety and fear to me. Uh, I'll share the second one. The, when we first moved here, remember the, the point of this story and illustration is to talk about how overwhelming water can be when it keeps coming and you want it to stop. Okay. So I, uh, I, we lived in, uh, on Harrison in this house behind Princeton Elementary School and we had just moved in three weeks and I'm trying to hook up a hose in my backyard. The problem was is that there was this old hose attached and I couldn't get it off. So I, I go and get pliers and I, I tighten them down and I'm going and as I'm doing it, I stop and I think this is probably not a great idea. Because I'm really having to put a lot of strength into this. But I, I, I thought I felt it give a little bit. And maybe I did. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Okay, I'm going the right direction. And so, I, and so I'm going to the left, I promise you. Because that's what you're going to be thinking. He was going the wrong way. I wasn't. I was going the right way. And I know I felt it give. But the problem was it, it stopped giving. And my arm accelerated through. And I snapped the whole thing out of the wall, the center block. And I'm on my knees and water is just flying in my face. And I'm literally choking. It's up my nose. And I step back and, and I have no idea what's, what's going on. And uh, some of you have heard me tell, tell the story in a different uh, context before. But what happens to me all the time happened to me that day. As I step back and I'm watching my yard be flooded with water. This is not hyperbole. I'm thinking two things. One, how am I going to stop it? Two, this is going to be quite a water bill if I don't figure this out. And three, how do I stop this? And so I, I ran out the front yard and guess who pulls up at my curb? Aaron Engstrom. <laughs> this has been happening to me all the time. This man saves me constantly. And he gets out all calm and he says, hey, I just wanted to check on you guys. At this point, Aaron lived two blocks or so from me. And he, and he could tell right away, he's like, what's wrong? And I said, I told him really quick what happened. I, I snapped the, the, the um, spigot off of, off of uh, where my host should go. And there's water everywhere in my backyard. How do I turn the water off? He said, he looked around, he goes, it's right there. You'll need a wrench. I have one in my car. <laughs> That's what he said. So he goes back, he gets it and he turns it off. And uh, that was the beginning of a long two-hour process, uh, but I fixed it. But water can be overwhelming, and it can be scary. And yet, we know that when, when water is turned on, it doesn't just quench our thirst. It continues to flow and flow and flow, if it comes from a source that doesn't end. And so, not only do we have a universal thirst that Jesus says he can meet. Not only do we all oftentimes go to the wrong sources to quench this thirst of our longings, but this passage also tells us that Jesus offers a river overflowing. A river that is like that spigot in my backyard that just won't stop. It just won't stop. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And so, what does that even mean, though? What does that mean for you and I every day? Well, I can say simply, according to Jesus in this passage, he has the only solution for our thirst problem. And he calls it living water. 
And John tells us that what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And when we read the Holy Spirit in Scripture, we need to understand the Holy Spirit to be the presence of God, to be God himself. Not, not only from God or of God, but God, the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, the presence of God dwells in you. God himself, the source of life. That's why this is the river of life that never ends. The river of life that even in a desert can all of a sudden spring up a pool of water. But what does that exactly mean? Because it's important for us to understand how the Bible sets our expectations. The Apostle Paul tells us about this gift of the Holy Spirit in his letter to the Galatians. And this is how he talks about it. He says, this gift is, quote, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, in the modern Greek word uh, of this word that we translate deposit, it's a word that is used for an engagement ring, for a symbol, right, in the present for that which will happen in the future, like an engagement ring. I promise to you. So it's a real thing. And, it, and yet it points to something that will come more fully in the future. And so you and I need to understand that our thirst for shalom, our thirst of our longings will be satiated when we trust in Jesus. But not fully yet. And not finally yet. But substantially. As we learn what it means, as Paul continues to say, to walk by the Spirit. The Bible never promises to take away all our pain or remove us from the brokenness of the world on this side of the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus does promise rivers of living water for our thirst now. And we know what it's like to live in this reality. That's why if we understand the work of the Holy Spirit to mainly or only be an experience we might grow cynical. If we understand the work of the Spirit mainly or only to give us, as one author said, the equivalent of a a spiritual day at Disneyland, uh, we will misunderstand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And yet, the essence of biblical Christianity is knowing God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us And this life, the very life of God begins to overflow in us, fills our desires to some extent, and then overflows to our neighbors. And so what does the spirit come to do in us then as these waters overflow? Three quick things. In his book, Dwell for the World, Barry Jones gives this helpful list and I'm going to take his bullet points and expound on them from my own words. The first thing he points to is that the spirit comes to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus, to his identity, his mission, and his work. Uh, The chapter before Jesus says the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, uh, chapters later in, in chapter 13, Jesus says the spirit will testify about me. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is why this is important. If we trust in Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, it's because the Spirit has worked his pervasive power in our lives. 
Here's, here's the thing. We talk about believe. What, what, what John doesn't mean, what I don't mean, is to convince you or anyone else of some ideas about Jesus. Because I actually can do that apart from the Spirit. I could make it seem legitimate. I can make it seem interesting. I can make Jesus seem really smart. I can make Jesus merely a philosopher, right? And I can tell you to believe in Jesus just like I tell you to believe in my political view of X, Y, and Z. And I can talk about ideas and I can tell you, I can invite you to, to the right side. But you see, to believe in Jesus is actually to trust him fully. That I can't convince you of. If you are in a hard marriage, if you have a boss who's exploiting you, if you are a business owner who answers to a board or to other stakeholders, or if you're a CEO and you're being asked to do things that are against your conscience, in that moment, your ideas about Jesus won't help you. If your doctrine is airtight and that's as far as it goes, it's not going to help you. Now I'm being a little hyperbolic, but to make my point, what are you being asked to do then? Not to profess that Jesus is Lord in that moment, but to trust that Jesus is Lord in that moment to believe him, which will cause you to live in a certain way, to say certain things, to not do certain things, right? Only the Holy Spirit can do that because you're foolish if you don't try to save yourself in that moment. Save your job. Save your reputation. You see, we all know that convincing other people of the truth of God's word and the goodness of his power, only the Holy Spirit can do that. Right? I mean, if, as, a, as a parent, I look at my children and I know that. I know I have no power. So if I, they're small now, I can control them. That's not going to last very long. So how do I cultivate in them a trust? How do we cultivate in ourselves a trust? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And that is what we can expect from the Spirit. To even believe in Jesus that he has living waters is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit also brings us eternal life. Eternal life is a big deal in John's gospel. The problem is a lot of times this phrase eternal life in English makes us emphasize the duration of the life, right? Eternal means it never ends. While that's true, that's not the emphasis of the phrase eternal life in John's gospel. John six forty seven, Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life, but you could translate it, whoever believes has the life of the age to come. You see, John's whole point is that we can have eternal life starting now. We don't have to wait for it. That is very clear in John's gospel, particularly. It is a type of life. You see, we tend to think of it as the life we will enter into in the future after our death. But what Jesus says is the spirit will bring that life into the present and it will dwell in us and it will change us and it will transform us. And so in many ways, we as disciples are called to live in that life, to be conformed to that life now, which one day will fully come. So the spirit brings in us eternal life. And this is a life that overflows. It's a different type of life, 
right? It's not bios. It's not biology life. It's a life that only God can bring. It's eternal life. It's life from the age to come that starts now. And that's part of the experience of living waters is to begin to taste that life now. And then the the third thing I want to mention is the spirit has come to conform us to the image of Christ. You see, Paul's goal in discipleship was that Christ would be formed in the Galatians, he says. Like labor pains, I labor that Christ will be formed in you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, a verse that we talk about a lot here, says that as we look at the face of Jesus, we behold him, we will be transformed into his image and that this is by the Spirit. You see, the destiny of every Christian is that we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ. The reason all of this goes together with this metaphor is that the longings and thirsts that you have are the longings and thirsts of a full, true human being. And Jesus comes to make you and I, in him, a real, true, redeemed, full human being. The problem with our desires now is not that they're human, it's that they're fallen. Okay, so Jesus is coming to make us fully human, just like he was fully human. And that's why the goal of discipleship, that's why the desire of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to conform us more into the image of Jesus, which starts on the inside and moves out, which changes and shapes our hearts to love the things of God and then moves us to put those things in action to our neighbor. That's what it means for the Spirit to dwell in us and overflow. It's to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. So let's bring this to a close by saying this. Even our suffering is used in this grand plan. Even when we don't know what's going on. And I bring that up because I know that many of us are suffering. In, in all types of ways. Emotional, physical, spiritual. And it could be easy to hear a sermon like this and think, but he doesn't understand how hard my life is. The first thing I would say is, you're right, I don't. I don't understand. But I am aware. And I have my own hardships and experiences. And so what I want to do then is I want to bring us back to one more piece of context that those at this feast would have understood. This water ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles called the people back to Moses. But what part of Moses' life? Particularly, it's Exodus 17, verse 6. You see, what had happened was that the people were grumbling for water and they were telling Moses, if we wouldn't have left Egypt, at least we would have had water there. They're grumbling about their circumstances. They don't believe that God sees them. They don't believe that God cares about them. They don't believe that God's even aware of their circumstances. They actually think that God through Moses has led them astray. And Moses goes with Aaron before the face of God, falls down at the tent of meeting and says, what should we do? And God tells Moses, there's a rock and I am going to go stand on that rock and you're going to strike the rock. He doesn't say, I'm going to stand near it. He doesn't say, I'm going to watch you do it. He says, I'm going to stand on the rock and you're going to strike the rock. What, what does that even mean except to say 
that God wants Moses and us as the readers to understand that he had so identified with the rock that it was as if Moses was bringing down God's own judgment on him because of the people's grumbling. And in fact, this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. He says, the rock in the wilderness was Jesus. And what he said, Moses, when you strike the rock, the one that I am on, water shall come out of it and the people will drink. See, interpreters see this promise of God standing on the rock, that God himself takes on the judgment, but also pours out the water. And so even in our grumbling and doubt, God meets us with his life-giving water. Jesus was struck on the cross and his death, resurrection, and ascension. Through that, now the presence of God pours out like living water for us to drink. And you and I are invited to come to the water and drink. So now I would implore you that longing that you're stuffing, that fear that you have, don't turn and dig a new cistern, but turn and drink from the water. You bring nothing except your thirst and he brings the water. He brings the quenching. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to first recognize our longings, recognize those places where we are ruthlessly and energetically digging and creating our own cisterns, filling them with water from other sources, thinking that it will quench us. And we go back to those and the water is empty. We ask now that you would conform us to your image, Jesus, by the Spirit, so that you would retrain our longings, that you would aim our loves towards your kingdom, and that our desires would be your desires. In Jesus' name, amen.